Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. And it's so great to see everybody today. Uh, real quick, I want to give a special shout out to all the ladies who are on Bridgepoint's ladies retreat the last few days. Give it up for that. I hope that you guys were encouraged and inspired and challenged in your relationship with Jesus. Also want to give a special shout out to any of the the men who are holding the fort down back at home or taking care of the kids to provide that opportunity for their wives. Yeah, let's give it up for the men. Woo! I know that that is such a, a simple way that as husbands, we get to serve our wives and our families. And so men, just thank you so much for being a servant and uh, loving your wives in that way. Um, this morning, we are chugging right along in our series where we're just walking through Paul's letter to the Romans. And today, I'm going to attempt for my next trick. We're going to attempt, but no promises, to try to make it through three full chapters, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And the reason for this is not because we're running behind schedule and I just got to get caught up really quick. The reason is 9, 10, and 11 are like one continuous thought that Paul has. Remember, Paul wrote this letter not thinking that, you know, thousands of years later, we're going to be sitting here doing 30-minute segments dissecting every word. He wrote this as a letter that was going to be read out and performed in front of a church in one big sitting. And so we're trying to get through a lot of stuff. Having said that, These chapters are some of the most discussed and debated in all of Romans. And so I'm sure there's going to be questions. If at any point you have a question, I want you to raise your hand and Mr. Keith is going to come around with the microphone because I promise you, I would much rather not get through all I have planned to get through, but for you to actually understand what's going on than for us to just check the box and say, yeah, we made it through three chapters and on to next week. Because if, if you don't understand what's going on, then we're kind of wasting our time here. So I want to do a little exercise, audience participation. All right, everybody put your hands up in the air. There we go. All right, you can put them down. Now you know how to raise your hand when you have a question. All right, so Mr. Keith is over here. So are we ready? All right, now I, I want to preface by saying Romans 9, 10, and 11, um, there is a certain um, thought or theological um, strand that looks at these chapters that they are teaching that God has predestined or elected certain people for salvation and certain people not. Or maybe put it this way, he's elected some people for heaven and he has not elected other people. And so they are um, predestined for hell. I want to show today how while there are good and godly people who believe that, I think that when we approach the text from that perspective, we're removing the context from what's going on in Paul's letter. I think what Paul's trying to communicate is something vastly different. Because remember, this is not a theological textbook. This was a letter written by Paul to a certain group of people at a certain point in time dealing with a certain issue. If you remember, he's writing this to a network of five Roman house churches. So so I think 20 to 30 people gathering in a house together. And these house churches are on the verge of breaking apart because there's two opposing groups. On the one hand, there's a group that Paul calls the weak. These are Jewish Christians who have no positions of power or authority in the church. And these Jewish Christians, they grew up, they knew the Torah, they knew scripture, and not only that, they had certain practices or behaviors that that made them Jewish. Things like circumcision, or eating kosher food, or taking the Sabbath. These were all distinctive behaviors that set them apart from everybody else. 
And so for them, they felt like, listen, we're following Jesus, but God's people have always done these things. So if, if we're going to all follow Jesus, then all of us, whether we're Jewish or not, need to adopt these same practices. Now, along with that, they didn't just think that the, the non-Jewish or the Gentile Christians should adopt those, but they kind of had this feeling that they were a little bit superior because of their Jewish heritage and history, because they were part of God's chosen people. God loved them first, and so they felt like they had a little bit of, of privilege and priority in that, even if they didn't have positions of power in the church. Now, the other group is the group Paul calls the strong, and they are the non-Jewish or Gentile Christians who are sitting in positions of power and authority in the church. And for them, they've never done those practices. They don't see how that's applicable at all to following Jesus, and so they're not going to follow the law. And so you have the weak then feel like they're better. They're condemning and judging the strong. The strong look down at the weak as kind of being backwards, and they're offended that they're being judged. So they're using all their positions to try to push the Jewish Christians out of the church. So the whole thing's about to break apart, which unfortunately in our day, it doesn't surprise us when churches have conflict and controversy and split apart from one another. But for Paul, this was a huge deal because the very fact that the church was unified was supposed to witness to the world the power of Jesus. Like, do you realize when we gather together as a church, like that's a testimony to the world that people who otherwise should not be friends, people who otherwise would not associate, people who are vastly different politically or with ideologies, different socioeconomic status, different races, different backgrounds, that when we come together unified around Jesus, that tells the world that Jesus is king. But if the church falls apart, then the question is, well, if Jesus can't even get this network of five house churches to get along, what hope is there for the world? And so for Paul, it's of utmost importance for this church to stay together. Are we still tracking? All right, so Paul, in his letter, the first four chapters, he's making the point, guys, nobody's better than anybody else. And he's specifically talking to the weak, the Jewish Christians who think that they have this special privilege and position with God. He says, guys, you're not better than the Gentiles. You're not better because of your history, your heritage, the, the works that you do. None of that. God doesn't love you anymore because of that. He didn't love you any less, but there, there's no special positions of privilege in the eyes of God. And the reason that that's important for them to understand is because in the next few chapters, Paul says, here's what's actually going on in the world. We all live in what Paul calls the world or in the flesh where the powers of sin and death are reigning. We're all, power, we're all slaves to the powers of sin and death. Because we know this because we have been, we've convinced ourselves that the way the world is is the way that the world just is supposed to be. Right? So if somebody hurts us, what do we do? We hurt them back. Like we want to get ahead of life. We just put ourselves above everybody else. We'll scratch and claw and climb over, over anybody to get whatever we need. We become materialistic. We become selfish. That's all the power of sin working in our lives. And because of that, we experience divisiveness. We experience destruction. And ultimately, we experience death. Now, God had a plan to deal with this. So in the Old Testament, God calls out a people for himself. This is the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And by the way, he's not calling them out because he said, I'm going to save you and the rest of the world is going down with the ship. He says, no, I want to actually save the ship. But the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to call out a people who will be a light to the world. That this people will be so different that they will actually draw everyone else into relationship with God. Does this make sense? So they're set apart, not because they're, they're better, but because they're supposed to serve the world around them. 
And to set them apart, God gives them the law or the Torah. That's why the Jewish people did all those different things. In fact, there are some crazy things in there we don't even think about sometimes. The fact that in the law, it said every few years, all debt was supposed to be forgiven. Can I get an amen on that one? All the slaves go free. Land gets returned. By the way, in the Old Testament, they don't believe in personal property rights because they believed everything belonged to God. So whatever you had, he was just loaning it to you for an amount of time. And so you would return it. Like That's like radically different than the way the world works because he wanted these people to be radically different. He wanted them to show the world what heaven on earth looks like. But there was a problem. The power of sin is so great that it even took the way God's people saw the law and it twisted it So instead of understanding they were set apart, they were chosen, elected to serve the world, they felt like they were chosen or elected because they were better than the world. In fact, when you look at the Old Testament, the language of election always has to do with God electing a people to be a light to the world. Never does it have to do with electing individual people for salvation. So so sin twists it, and all of a sudden, God's people look just like the world. And so in Romans, Paul says, God sent his son Jesus to do what the law could not do. So the law could not create this community that was a light to the world that would draw people to God. That's what the law couldn't do. So he sent his son Jesus to do that. So he died on the cross. He rose again. He breaks the power of sin and death. And when we're baptized into Christ, all of a sudden we become a part of a community that is a light of the world that's supposed to serve the world so that they come into relationship with God. And instead of being controlled by the powers of sin and death, it's grace and righteousness, there's peace, there's unity, and ultimately, there's life. And not talking about like life in heaven after you die, like you can actually be who God created you to be. So that's all of Romans 1 through 8. And you have to understand that because that leads to a very important question for the Jewish people. They're saying, wait a second, The law couldn't do something, and so God sent his son, Jesus. So all of a sudden, being made right with God comes apart from Torah, apart from the law, and only through Jesus. So God's doing something new. So if God's doing something new, has he been unfaithful to his people? Do you see how that would be a problem? feels like the rug got pulled out from under them. God, you told us to do this, and now you're doing something completely different. Have you been unfaithful to us? And that's where Paul picks up in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. He says, Now it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. What on earth is Paul talking about? Now, one thing you have to know about Romans 9 and 10 is if there was a hyperlink back to every Old Testament reference, every single word in these chapters would be hyperlinked back to the Old Testament. He's going to talk about Abraham and Sarah, Rebecca and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Moses and Pharaoh. He's going to quote from Isaiah and from Job. And I wish we had time to look at all those stories in depth and then see why Paul is drawing on them. But I assume that at some point you're going to want to hit up the Mexican restaurant for lunch. So we're not going to do all that. But I am going to give you kind of the Cliff's Notes version because Paul is speaking again to the weak to Jewish people who know these stories. So as he references them, these people already understand what's going on. 
And Paul's trying to say, listen, God isn't unfaithful. Like, like God has always worked in surprising ways. Like, it's surprising to you that he would use Jesus instead of the law? Well, guess what? This shouldn't be surprising because God is always surprised. That makes sense. I said surprising like 13 times. So he starts off by referencing Abraham and Sarah. If you're familiar with the story, you know that when Abraham was 60 years old, God comes to him and tells him, you're going to have a kid, which for me would be terrifying. But for Abraham, that was a good thing because for him, God had told him years before that God was going to use him to he would bless him so they, he would bless the world. But Abraham says, I don't have any descendants. And God said, well, I'll give you a child. But the part of that story that, that, that comes after that is 30 years of, of nothing. And then when Abraham and Sarah are 90 years old, she gives birth to a son named Isaac. Now, I don't know about you, but having a newborn is tough at any age. And I can imagine at 90 years old, when Isaac's crying at 3 a.m. because he's hungry, I, do you think maybe there's a little complaining Yes, no. I mean, I know I would be complaining. You're like, oh, I can't believe this is awful. And when I think about that, it's a reminder to me that sometimes the things we are complaining about are the very things we used to pray about. Like the things that all of a sudden frustrate us and we like, oh, I can't believe that are the very things we had begged God for. Like, listen, married people don't look at each other, but you know your spouse fits in this category. There are times where you're frustrated and you're fighting and you're like, I can't believe they're like that. But don't you remember all the time you prayed? You prayed that God would send you your spouse? I mean, think about even our jobs. Like how easy is it to complain about our jobs? But I know there have been times where we prayed that God would open up doors and there would be a place of provision. And I think that's why it's so important in the New Testament. Paul says, do all things without complaining. Because I know I have the tendency to complain about things I used to pray for. And we have to remember that even sometimes the burdens are actually the blessings that God has given us. Now, all of a sudden, you have this 90-year-old couple who has this baby. And, and that is surprising, right? Because I don't know how much about human biology. I know we got some younger people in the room. But that's not normally the age you have kids, right? Why would God do this? Why would he tell them at 60 and wait until 90? Because that's something only God can do. Who knows that? Amen? Only God could do that. Now, if you know the story, you know that during that 30-year period, Abraham and Sarah, they started to question God's faithfulness. So at one point, they devise a plan. Abraham, why don't you sleep with your servant, Hagar? And so he does. And they have a child named Ishmael. Now, who is the oldest in the house then? Is it Ishmael or Isaac? It's Ishmael. He's born first. And this is important because when God gives a promise, the way they understood that in, his, in, in that culture and context is that promise would be fulfilled by one specific line in the family tree. So you guys know a big family tree here, right? That lots of branches, unless you're from Alabama, and then it's a straight pole, right? Just kidding, <laughs> kind of. So you have this big tree, and you have all of these kids. Now, who normally is the one who gets the inheritance in that culture? Is the oldest but the oldest doesn't get it. It's Isaac. And so uh, Paul's point is God's always done surprising things. There's a 90-year-old couple who has a baby. That's surprising. Not only that, but that baby is not the oldest, and yet that is the one who's chosen to receive all the benefits of the promise. That is surprising. He continues on in the next verse, verse 10. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac, for though her sons had not been born yet, or done anything good or bad, 
so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. So now Isaac grows into a man, and he's with Rebekah, who gets pregnant with twins. And while she's pregnant, before she's given birth, God tells them, listen, I'm going to bless the younger one, not the older one. He does this before they're born so that it says, so God's purpose and election might stand. What is God's purpose? That it doesn't depend on works. Like it wasn't like, oh, we know Jacob's going to be really good. He could be really smart and really funny and charismatic. No, before anything, it's so that God gets all the credit. I'm doing something surprising, and I'm going to pick the younger one to be the inheritor of the blessing instead of the older one. Now, does this mean that God's abandoned? He's not talking, I'm picking this person for salvation. He said, this is going to be the line through which my people are going to um, be the ones to bring about blessing to the whole world. Are we still tracking? All right, good. Let's continue. Verse 14. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. Again, this is a hyperlink back to Exodus 33. You're saying, wait a second. God's, uh, does that make God unjust that he would choose just random like that? He says, no, no, no. Remember back to Moses, Exodus 33. This is right after God gives, um, Moses goes up on the mountain. God gives him the 10 commandments. He walks down and what are God's people doing? Do you remember? Worshiping a golden calf. And to me, I know it's a serious story. The funny part to me, Moses gets so ticked off. He slams the tablets on the ground. They break. Got to go back and ask God for new ones. So he goes back up to talk to God. And God said, listen, in just a little bit, we're going to leave this mountain. And I'm going to lead you to a land for your people. And Moses says, God, have you met your people before? Like, dude, I can't stand them. And God, here's why I'm frustrated. You say you're going to lead us, but they won't even be faithful for five minutes. So they're going to be unfaithful to you. And then I'm worried you're just going to up and leave. Like, how can I trust this? He says, God, the only way I know how I can trust you is if you'll show your glory to me. Which, by the way, pretty bold ask, right? Like, who is Moses to tell God, like, I need you to show me your glory if I'm going to trust you. But this is how good God is. He shows him his glory. Exodus 33, it's one of my favorite verses. It says, he saw God face to face as with a friend. Like, that's amazing. And God tells Moses, Moses, you don't have to worry because I'm gonna have mercy on who I wanna have mercy on. I'll have compassion on who I wanna have compassion on. Like, I'm gonna have mercy and compassion on Israel. Not because of works, not because they're good, because I know they're gonna fail. I know they will be unfaithful, but you can trust me because I'm faithful to my word. So, so Paul's saying, listen, God does surprising things but God also has always been faithful to his people. And then in the very next verse, verse 17, it says, For scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Hyperlink back to the book of Exodus, the story of Moses and Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh is the leader of Egypt at the time God's people are enslaved. So God sends Moses to Pharaoh. And it actually quotes it there in the passage. Moses tells Pharaoh, listen, God has a message for you. He said he has positioned you right where you're at for a moment like this 
so that through you, his power and glory would be displayed. Here's another surprising move by God. God is now choosing Pharaoh to be an agent of salvation for God's people. He's giving Pharaoh the opportunity to get in on the work that God is doing. He says, listen, when you let my people go, guess what? They'll see my glory. And given this great opportunity, what does Pharaoh say? He says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. That's ridiculous. So it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's actually fascinating. If you read the story 10 times, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Five of them, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Five of them, God hardens his heart. And what they're trying to communicate is that when God will partner with you in your yes, but he will also partner with you in your no. And God is so committed to his mission of saving people that when we say no to God, he's fine. He'll partner with you in that, but he'll just bypass any obstacle. So Pharaoh says no. God says fine. And he sends the plagues. And it's actually through the plagues then that his power and glory is made known. Now, this is both encouraging and a warning because Paul's real point here is, listen, God's faithful to Israel, but when Israel hardened their heart towards God, when they stopped living the way he asked them to live, he said, that's fine. I'll let you do it your way, but you're not going to stop me from my mission. So I'm going to keep going. That's why he sent Jesus, right? This is the whole argument Paul's making. But I also think this can be, this can be an encouraging thing for us. Because as a pastor, so many times people come to me and say, Matt, how do I know God's will for my life? Matt, I got these two different job opportunities. Which one should I take? God, I don't know. I don't know what God wants me to do here. And the thing is, I can tell you God's will for your life. You ready? His will for your life is to be his image and to watch and work in the world. That's his ultimate will for your life. Now, over your lifespan, God will give you many different opportunities for how that plays itself out, how that works itself out. Now, here's the good news. If you were to make the wrong choice, you're not going to stop God. Right? Like if God called you to be a missionary overseas and you said no, God says, that's fine. I'll, I'll work with that. I'll just use somebody else. So when we say no to God, we're actually the ones who miss out, not God. Like, don't make a mistake. You're not that important. You're not going to mess up God's plans. But I also think that's encouraging because sometimes God gives you options because no matter which one you pick, he's willing to work with that one, right? Like you don't have to worry, did I marry the right person? Did I take the right job? Did we buy the right? You don't have to worry because God will work through that. And you say, yeah, but Matt, what if we made like the wrong decision? Well, guess what? God didn't give Pharaoh one opportunity. He gave him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And even if you make the wrong decision, he'll keep giving you opportunities to come into alignment with him. God's like a grandmaster chess player. Anybody here ever play chess? Just, all right, two of us. Awesome. Oh, there we go. We got some over there. I love chess. Now, a, a good player is thinking, you know, three to five moves ahead. Great player, 15 to 20. Someone like me, I like to be in the moment, you know, just kind of feel it out. But God is like this grandmaster uh, chess player. And whenever we make a move, he already knows what move to make to push us back into alignment with him. He's just working all the time. God loves you. And listen, he gives us the freedom. We can say no and he'll bypass it, but he'll also keep giving us opportunities to come back into alignment with him. Paul continues on verse 19. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? What does formed say to the one who is formed? Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? saying, well, then if, if we say no and God hardens us, 
then why is he even holding us accountable for that? Like, isn't this really ultimately God's fault? And Paul says, no, 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 no. Who are you to answer back to God? Like, God is the, the master potter. He's making all of this stuff. Like, like, who do you think you are? And it's not like, who do you think you are? How dare you question God? I think God is okay with us questioning. But I think the, the point he's making is, how do you think you can even begin to comprehend God's plan? Right? Like I've used this illustration before. As human beings, we can predict some things like close events with a certain level of predictability. Like we could probably predict what the weather tomorrow is going to be with a decent sense of accuracy, maybe even a week from now. But try two years from now. And if we can't even predict the weather two years from now, how do we think we can predict what our lives will look like two years from now? And sometimes we're questioning, God, how is this fair? This doesn't seem right. And really, that's where it comes down to, do we trust that God knows more? And can we trust that God understands his plan even better than we do? And he continues on, verse 22. And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this? to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul says, well, what if, just what if God was patient for so long with vessels that were prepared for destruction. And by the way, that's like a really wonky way to translate that in English. But the idea here in the, in the second verse we read, it actually says like God prepared vessels for mercy. Here, the vessels are preparing themselves for destruction. They like become fit for destruction. They're saying, what if God was just so patient with this vessel that like made themselves fit for destruction so that there could be a new vessel of mercy, for both Jews and Gentiles? What is he saying? saying, what if God was so patient with the hard-heartedness of Israel, who through their rejection of God made them, they, they like made themselves fit for destruction. But what if God was so patient with them because there was a new vessel that he wanted to pour his mercy out on that wasn't just for Jews, but for Gentiles only? Saying God isn't unfaithful to his plan or to his people just because it is surprising to us. And sometimes what looks like unfaithfulness is actually God's patience to bring about his ultimate plan. Are we still tracking? Yes? No? Maybe so? All right. If not, let me know. Otherwise, I'm going to keep going. But let's, let's get wild. Let's skip a few verses. Let's jump down to verse 30. How do we feel about that? We're not getting to chapter 11 today. I can already tell you that, by the way. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. So in between the verses that we're skipping over, he quotes some Old Testament verse. And he said, so you know where this leads us? Gentiles who didn't have the law, they weren't pursuing righteousness. Now they have been made righteous. And this seems unfair because the Jewish people who had the law that was supposed to make them righteous, they tried to, to fulfill it, but they weren't made right with God. He says, why is that? Because they didn't do it by faith, but by works. 
And this is where we have to be careful because sometimes we read this as Paul contrasting faith and works as if like God's people were just trying to prove themselves worthy of God's love. That's not what he's talking about. It's a little more nuanced than that. So he's saying they did all the works, like they checked all the boxes. They did all the things they were supposed to do, but they did it just to check the box. There was no faith. There was no heart behind it. In other words, they were going through the motions, but they didn't actually have any kind of love or relationship in it. Kind of it might be like if I come home from work every day, let's say I cook dinner every day, clean up every night. I, I do homework with the kids and I give them baths and I put them down and I take out the trash. I like, I just all-star husband. But then when my wife's not around, I'm flirting with other people. Maybe when my wife wants to go on a date, I'm like, no, I'm just going to sit here and watch Netflix by myself. I could do all the right things. Would, would that be a healthy marriage? No. On the outside, I'm checking all the boxes, right? I'm doing all the right stuff, but I'm not doing it because I love my wife. I'm doing it just to check off the box, say, well, I did all the stuff you wanted me to do. What more do you want? And by the way, it's so easy for us to look down. So easy for me to look down when I read the Bible and be like, how could people be like this? You ever read the Bible and you're like, how could the Pharisees be so dumb? How could the, the Israelites act like that? I used to have a professor in college who would say, anytime you look at the Bible and think someone is stupid, that is the person you are most guilty of becoming. Because the reason you think they're stupid is because you have a blind spot that that's in your own life. And the reality is I know all of us are guilty of this because Jesus, he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And what many of us hear is, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Like if you really loved me, you would prove it to me by doing all this stuff. And it's hard when it's translated from a different language into English, but when you read it in the original language, what Jesus is actually saying is, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. He's that idea like, he's not after the commands, he's after your heart. Because if he gets your heart, the, the commands will follow, right? Like if he gets your heart, then all of the works will flow from it. But, but it's much easier to put on a show and just do the works when there's no heart involved. Isn't that right? And so the, the reality, this is why all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are saying, listen, God doesn't care about your sacrifices or your Sabbaths or all these things you're doing because you're not actually loving God. And I wonder if for many of us here today, listen, what you need to realize is your goal is to fall more in love with Jesus, not to just do more stuff. Now, how do we do that? Well, I think we spend time with him. By the way, for all the single people here today, I can get you a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, just go on a road trip with somebody. I promise you it works because you spend the four hours in a car with somebody, all of a sudden you're laughing, you're sharing stories. This is how I got my wife. We went on a four-hour road trip together. And by the way, all of the spiritual disciplines, like, like whether it's Sabbath or prayer or fasting or confession, those things are not just stuff to check off the box. Those are dates we have with God. That's how we spend time with Jesus. Those are things where we're getting an opportunity to fall more in love with him. And if we fall more in love with him, we will become more like him. In fact, my favorite verse in this whole text we're reading today is, down in chapter 10, verse 4, it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Since Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law, the one who does these things will live by them. It says, For Christ is the end of the law. And what he's not saying is Christ like came and put an end to the law. Like There's other verses we could talk about that. But the word that's used here is the word telos. It means that Jesus was the goal of the law. 
The law, like if you followed the trajectory, it was always pointing to Jesus. The law was designed to create a people who look like Jesus. Says even Moses said that if you if you do the works, then all of a sudden you're going to truly live. When we look at Jesus, we don't just see God's son. We see someone who is fully human. That is what it looks like to be fully alive, to care for people, to serve for them, to be humble, to consider others better than yourself, to be obedient to God. That is what it looks like to be fully alive. And the law the whole time was pointing to Jesus. And that's so key because the point Paul's making is, listen, yeah, Jesus did what the law could not do. But if the law could do something, it would actually lead you back to Jesus. He's saying he hasn't been unfaithful to you. Look, you're still a part of Jesus. You're still new in the body of Christ. Like that's all available to you. Jesus isn't necessarily something completely new. It's just the next step in God's plan. And so the question is, how do we find ourselves in Jesus then? And he gives them the answer, starting in verse six. He says, but the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will go up, or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness. And one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saying, so how are we a part of this? He says, don't, don't ask, like, what works can I do to ascend up to heaven? Because guess what? Jesus already came down. Don't ask, do I really have to get down there in the abyss? And no, no, because Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul says it's been right in front of you all along. It's whoever believes, whoever confesses, whoever commits themselves to following Jesus. That's it. You don't have to do anything. I mean, that, that's the best. You don't have to do a single thing. And that's like some of you grew up in church. You're like, yeah, we've heard that before. But now you understand like the deep, rich theology that's behind it. Jesus did everything. So all we have to do is believe and confess and follow. Then in the last, well, I'll just summarize the last. So we can say we made it all the way through chapter 10. He says, well, who, who's gonna, who's gonna, how are they going to know if no one tells them? How beautiful are the feet that bring the gospel? And oftentimes that's a passage where like, so we need to go out and evangelize. That's not what he's saying. Remember, he's talking to Jewish people. And he's like, so you might say, who's going to tell Israel about this? Who, who's going to tell? Somebody's got to go tell them. At the end of chapter 10, Paul says, they've already been told. Because all of scripture has been pointing to Jesus all along. This is like beautiful story that Paul's weaving here. And I love, he said, God, he starts off just telling us all the, un, all the surprising ways that God moves. And I love that because I don't know about you, but there's times in my life where I can like, I feel like God might be calling me to do something, but I'm coming up with all the reasons why I can't. Well, God, I'm just not really extroverted. Well, I don't really have a lot of influence. Man, I wish I could do something, but I don't have a lot of money. Don't have a lot of power. Listen, here's the beautiful thing. God doesn't need any of that. In fact, the very thing you think disqualifies you might be the very reason that God would choose to use you. 
because he wants to use people where he gets all the credit. This, amen, yeah, yeah. Man, he, he wants to, we think, man, we just need to get the right people in positions of power. Can I tell you something? God isn't gonna change the world through the government of the United States of America. He's not gonna change the world through millionaires and billionaires. He's going to change the world, bring heaven to earth through people like you and me who just in our daily lives are committed to it. And we live in a culture where we want these big acts and these grand displays, but the way I've seen God even work in my own life is it's just little by little by little, he's transforming me and he's changing me. And in the same way, it's little by little by little that he's bringing heaven to earth. When I grew up in Ohio, get a lot of snow. That's why my wife says we're never allowed to go to Ohio in the wintertime. But if you've ever been somewhere where it snows, there's, there's one of two ways that the snow can go away. Every once in a while, the temperature will get just enough above freezing that the rain will come through. And in one fell swoop, all of a sudden the snow is gone and you can see the grass and everything else. And oftentimes that's what we expect God to do, right? God just in one moment, come do everything. But more often than not, what happens is there's a lot of snow on the ground and the temperature goes up and slowly, slowly, day by day, the snow melts grass begins to poke through, a little green here, a little brown there, and then all of a sudden over time, it's spring. Life is there. That is how heaven comes to earth. Yes, there are moments where God will work in an instant, and those are great, but more often than not, his plan to change the world is through normal people like you and me, every day, living our lives in Christ. That's the surprising way God has chosen to change the world. And today he's inviting us to be a part of it. So in just a moment, I'm gonna pray and we'll have a time of communion. And as you're sitting there with God, there's a couple things I want you to wrestle with. The first one is this. What is it that you think disqualifies you? Why do you think God wouldn't use you? Is it because you don't know your Bible? Is it because you're just still new to this whole Jesus thing? What? Whatever it is, identify it, and then ask God to use you because of that thing. And the second thing I really want you to wrestle with is where are you just going through the motions? Maybe some of you are here today because you're just going through the motions. You're in a life group because you're just going through the motions. You're reading your Bible in the morning because you're just going through the motions. And ask God to give you a fresh passion and vision just to spend time in his presence. Go on a date with Jesus this week. Spend some time in prayer and worship, confession. So when we spend time with Jesus, we fall more in love with him. And the more in love with him we are, the more we become like him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, I'm so thankful that you did what the law couldn't do. And that now you don't expect me to do anything other than to be with you to fall in love with you. And I pray right now, you would renew in my heart fresh passion, excitement, and joy. I pray you would begin to transform my heart so that my actions towards my neighbors, my family, my friends, would be more like you. And I pray for every person in here right now who feels like they don't know enough they can't be enough to be used by you. I pray right now, God, 
you just use them in a powerful way so that you get the credit. God, we just want to partner with you. We want to be more like you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. As you feel led, you can take communion. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.